This is Educate, a podcast from APM Reports. I'm Stephen Smith. How would you describe what we see inside? Um, a scary movie. Um, the floor has been removed, the, the parquet, and now what you see is just a layer of, of blackness. We've been told that it was black mold. Um, in, in fact, the city inspector said that it was mold. This is school counselor Lakia Wilson describing the state of the gymnasium at Spain High School in Detroit. The gym is one example of what teachers and students say are deplorable conditions in Detroit's public schools. Here are two students describing their challenges to the PBS NewsHour. In my math class, there are not enough textbooks and um, some of the pages are missing. So we have to try to scramble around and find the books with that page, try to take a picture of the problems we have to do. It's kind of like you feel like you're the, like the bottom of the barrel. You feel like we're not worth anything. I mean, we, we may know differently, but what they're showing us is not that we're worth something. In September, a group of Detroit students filed a lawsuit against the state of Michigan, claiming that conditions are so bad that they are unable to learn and are therefore being denied a fundamental right to literacy. But is literacy a right? Advocates say yes. The state of Michigan disagrees. This week, we'll learn more about the lawsuit. Annie Hudson-Price is an attorney with Public Counsel, a pro bono law firm in California that is filing the complaint on behalf of the Detroit students. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. What is the situation with Detroit's public schools for people who haven't been following? This lawsuit is being brought against the state of Michigan for failing to provide students in Detroit with access to literacy. And... If you look at all of the schools in the Detroit public school system, including charter schools, there is a complete lack of access to even the most basic educational services. So the students we've been working with, we have not yet met a student who has ever brought home a textbook in their entire school career. Um, The temperatures in many of the classrooms, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this, are 100 degrees at the beginning of the school year get down to the point where they can see their breath when it's the winter. It's a consequence of um, the way the state has been managing the schools. Lots of schools have been closing. So you have students who live an hour and a half away trying to get to these schools without access to a school bus unless they're special education students relying on incredibly unreliable public transportation. They get there, they walk into the school building, it's crumbling, they don't have teachers. There was, I think, about approximately 200 vacancies in just the public school component of this system at the beginning of this school year. And I, and I do want to clarify, this is not to slam the teachers. The teachers have just gone above and beyond for these kids. A lot of the students say they have one or two teachers that have you know, saved them. And why is it happening? What, what is happening in the Detroit district that's not happening elsewhere in Michigan? Well, you know, it's been decades of systematic state disinvestment and deliberate indifference to what's been going on. Um, There's incredible proliferation of charter schools that are not, that have no accountability. There's no oversight to make sure that they comply with the requirements of providing an education. They open and close like popcorn. Um, You have significant underinvestment in the tools the students need. So like I mentioned, there's no textbooks. There's no, I mean, there's no toilet paper in a lot of these schools. The teachers personally have to buy even those most basic supplies. Um, And 
the state really is ultimately responsible for the running of these schools. In fact, the state, more so than anywhere else, has been actually running the schools themselves since 1999, since the state took over. And honestly, I, I, it blows my mind that this has happened. I don't really have, I don't know what the possible excuse can be, but um, other than you know, deliberate indifference to a majority minority school system and a school system that is largely made up of students who are on free and reduced lunch. The lawsuit alleges that um, all people have a fundamental right to literacy. What is that based on? Where, in the, where, for example, in the Constitution is that a, a fundamental right? It's actually a fundamental right of access to literacy is uh, what, we are, what we are seeking uh, recognition of. And it is in the 14th Amendment where you are guaranteed protection of your fundamental rights as well as your rights um, of equal protection. And we are arguing that the 14th Amendment includes a fundamental right of access to literacy. You can see a number of rights are found in the 14th Amendment that aren't necessarily spelled out clearly, um, one of the biggest ones being a you know, right to privacy. And from that right to privacy, you know, certain other rights like the right to an abortion and similar um, rights that aren't explicitly laid out in the Constitution have been found by the courts. And the courts have said in the, in the 1982 case, I believe it was, um, at that point it was in Texas and it was a, um, a state law that prohibited undocumented students from attending public schools. And the Supreme Court said under the 14th Amendment, you can't wholesale exclude a population from the schools. And they spoke particularly about you could not deny this whole population access to literacy because it's impossible to meaningfully function and participate in our society if you have not been given the tools of literacy. Don't you also argue that the that the courts have found that uh, equal education, equal opportunity, equal access to education is fundamental to people's, you know, need to be educated as voters? We are arguing that that is essential to why literacy itself is a fundamental right. And, and the other side's arguments are that the court has, has actually found that there isn't a fundamental right to education, but this is much more basic than a fundamental right to education. This is right to access to the most basic building block of education and one that is essential to participation, as you mentioned, in our democracy and to, to your ability to vote, to your ability to, um, to work, to participate in our economy. Um, and the Supreme Court has certainly found that you cannot deny protected groups access to equal education and, and protected groups, including uh, racial minorities. And we are certainly arguing that this case involves deliberate indifference to a entire population that is largely made up of racial minorities and um, students who are on free and reduced lunch as a shorthand for um, explaining students who come from high poverty communities. What are the other elements of the state's response to the initial complaint? Their two primary arguments are, like I said, that there is no um, fundamental right to education and that the state is not responsible for the Detroit schools, arguing that schools are a local system and that, therefore, the state cannot be the one held responsible. All the state has to do is ensure that there are buildings that students can go to. Um, and honestly, it's, it's a hard... It's hard pill to swallow when you look at Detroit in particular, where the state has run the schools 
since 1999. It, there have been emergency managers. There's been a state school reform redesign office. There's been a financial review commission. All of these that have been controlled and appointed by the state. They are claiming that once they were appointed, they became local officers, but these are not people that were elected in Detroit. The Detroiters themselves had any real say in. And on top of that, the school system has really run into the ground since they took over. It has, I mean, the, the track record since 1999 is abominable. And then beyond that, there's the more general reality that under the Michigan Constitution, the state is responsible for the running of the school systems. Um, the Northwest Ordinance required Michigan, in order to become a state, to include provisions about providing public education and guaranteeing access to public education. And then the last detail is with the charter schools, again, that is all about state oversight and accountability. If there's no state oversight and accountability, those char- the charter schools have no one to answer to. Donald Trump's pick for education secretary is Betsy DeVos, a longtime school choice activist and a, and a big-time funder in the state of Michigan. Uh, I can imagine her saying that these students should just choose to go somewhere else instead of staying in a failing public school. Yeah. Where? <laughs> I would love, I would, first of all, you shouldn't have to go, there shouldn't be schools. Your your options shouldn't be between schools that are poisoning you and schools that are 50 miles away that might accept you. Because don't forget, with school choice, it's up to the school district to decide whether or not they will accept outside students. And the reality is Gross Point is not accepting these students. Gross Point is a suburb of Detroit, which is fairly affluent. Fairly affluent, only eight miles from some of our schools. Um, our, our students talk about, they play them in sports, and they talk about the shock of when they walk onto those campuses. And they have, you know, incredible access to resources. The, the other issue is charter schools are a huge manifestation of school choice. They're sort of the answer that a lot of people have given to local school choice options. But as I mentioned, the charter schools, there's no accountability, there's no oversight. These are not schools that these students can go to and get a meaningful education, get access to literacy. The charter schools we're looking at, I mean, it's, they're worse than the public schools. So what are the plaintiffs asking for? What do they want to see change? We're seeking evidence-based programs for the delivery of literacy in the schools, an appropriately qualified and well-trained teacher in every classroom. And by that, I mean not a math teacher who, because there's no one else available, is covering the Spanish class, which is what we hear happens all the time. So both certified and appropriately qualified for those specific classrooms. Um, The elimination of the conditions that get in the way of literacy instruction, so these horrific school conditions I mentioned, access to books, access to drinking water. Um, And then finally, a system of statewide accountability to ensure that the state is monitoring these conditions that deny access to literacy and that they are addressed in a timely manner. Is this this a lawsuit that's limited to Michigan, or could it be a precedent that would be used by advocates in other states and other districts to try for the same thing? It is certainly not limited to Michigan. You know, unfortunately, we could have brought this lawsuit in a lot of places, um, and it, it is a federal lawsuit. So any precedent we set, um, we hope would be able to provide a tool to advocates around the country. Annie Hudson-Price, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Annie Hudson-Price is an attorney with Public Counsel, a pro bono law firm based in California. To read more about this case and to hear other podcasts about the challenges facing inner-city schools, you can visit our website, apmreports.org. 
While you're there, browse our archive of more than 100 documentaries, including many that focus on K-12 and higher education. That's apmreports.org. Find us on Twitter and Facebook and tell us what you think about this lawsuit. Do you think literacy is a fundamental right? We'd love to hear from you. Support for Educate comes from Lumina Foundation and the Spencer Foundation. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Smith, and this is APM. APM.